this is gonna be the best Driscoll sermon ever. It's the best. It's the greatest, greatest Uh, Mars Hill podcast ever. It's huge. Stupid sexy Flanders. <laughs> hey guys! Tales nothing from the at ditch. all. <laughs> like nothing at all. We are here with uh, Seth, Sean, Nathan Harley, our friend is back again, and my crippling anxiety. So here we are. Hey guys! <laughs> Welcome back, Nathan. Back for the revengening. <laughs> the That's revengening, right. Which. <laughs> So, Nathan, uh, I just wanted to give a shout-out to him because we're celebrating a little. He is graduating. Um, uh, what? I'm so bad at this. What, what's your school? Multnomah University up in Portland. All right, Multnomah, Portland. It's your bachelor's. And uh, can you give the full title what your uh, degree is going to be in? Bible and theology with an emphasis in pastoral ministries. There you go. Congratulations. Thank you. He is the recipient of the Creflo Dollar Integrity Award. and Comes with your own jet. Comes with your own jet. <laughs> Recording this in the air. You can't <laughs> You can't spread heresy if you're not flying that fast. I mean, you got It's true. You don't want to be in a tube with some demons. Yeah, a tube with a demon. It's true or false. Kenneth Copeland looks like the, uh, what is his name? Hoggle from Labyrinth, the goblin. He does. Yeah, I don't who, know. I always just thought of tubes and demons as being like a Chuck E. Cheese thing. <laughs> tubes and demons. What is his name? Haggle? Hoggle? Was it? I think it's Hoggle. Hoggle. Uh, who did better? He's the grumpy. <laughs> who wore it best? <laughs> that face. Hoggle or Kenneth Copeland? Oh, <laughs> uh, Kenneth Copeland. <laughs> who did best? A mayonnaise jar or John McCarthy? I've had like serious conversations with people like, oh, did you, did you hear about that convention coming? It's Kenneth Copeland. Aren't you going to go? And it's like, oh, this conversation <laughs> just got really uncomfortable. Yeah. He, he, he once defended, uh, his other heretic friend who had a private jet, who had an experience as private jet. Kenneth Copeland goes, hey, let's just stop the conversation. Now, could you have had this experience in a normal commercial airliner? He goes, no, I could not. He goes, case closed. Case closed, <laughs> brother. And then he was like, the power of the babe. And he went out to eat a baby and like serve David Bowie. I don't know. Something. <laughs> the power of the baby. He got lost in Labyrinth. The babe with the power. <laughs> yeah, Come on, I get it. I know. Yeah, I'm his falling. jet is fueled by puppies. <laughs> <laughs> fueled by puppies and, and bobbers. Uh, oh, I wanted to give a um, shout out to um, a cop friend of ours in Elko, um, Kyle. Not going to use his last name, but watching the show uh, on his uh, break. Um, uh, also, Seth from Elko, Seth Morton. But Kyle specifically because, like, he is a light in that um, in that department and serious is, like, this loyal listener to Tales from the Ditch. Yeah, despite thank you for what listening. we say. Yeah. <laughs> so he's Especially just a cool guy. you guys like cops so he's much. He's a police officer. Well, That's the thing. I um, want to point out Sean's the cop hater. It sounds, I acknowledge I had. I didn't say I hate all cops. I just said I hate <laughs> the mean ones. And it sounds like Kyle is a great police officer. He also has Kyle a heart Murphy, for like... right? Last name Murph? <laughs> Murph. <laughs> Good old, old Murph. He ha- he's he has, a loose cannon, I've heard. He has a heart for um, also like family ministries and stuff like that. Like, he's a solid guy. It, we need... If anyone's going to be in like that type of department, the things he's going to see, we need a guy like that. So, yeah, And Barouche, Reno Judo Club. 
I actually have to repent a little bit of my early uh, cop disliking, not because I was wrong, <laughs> per se. because you're racist. But because I have run into, since that, I've run into so many more uh, police officers that I genuinely respect and think are doing a good job, not only for our community, but I think are imaging God well and appreciating the image of God in other people well. It's happened like three times and it's been super embarrassing well, for me. And ultimately, I mean, we want everyone to flourish because the issue with politics a lot of the time is like, all right, you're picking the right or the left, whereas I want both of them to flourish and know God. Same thing. I want the African-American community, their you know, identity as humans to be affirmed in their dignity and worth, but I also want to see police flourish. I, I would. Why would we want ministers of justice not to flourish, or there be corruption, or not? I, like, I want the best one. But anyway, yeah. that's what. Let's get down to the brass taxes. Those taxes. The taxes. <laughs> um, thanks a lot, Obama. Nathan, are you ready for our questions? It, Sean, do you want to go first or me? You go first. That's you enabling me. Yeah, well, this is Waterloo. It's because all over I need to relight my pipe, and oh, your okay. cigars going just fine. You got to give me the so, lighter, though. Um, so I have a question, but I also have a theory with it. So I more want to see, what do you think? Are we on track? The question that comes up is, so our country was known as like this place of liberty of freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, uh, civil discourse even. Like you'd have uh, William Buckley even would have these debates and that was commonplace. And it was common to shake the guy's hand even after a debate, regardless of what they believed. Because I think it was this view of, yeah, we may disagree politically, but that's not all there is to you. Yeah. That is completely gone now where you cannot talk about soldiers, police, guns, transgender rights. I mean, the list goes on where you will get shouted down. We're not debating. We're listening for qualifiers. And the second we see we don't meet that qualifier, son, even theology, like instead of just saying, well, this guy's a heretic and we you know, put him in his rightful place. Everyone's a heretic who disagrees. Everyone's, you know, like it's not just someone who has some Aryan heresy that we go, oh, he's off. If you challenge something and say something even a degree off or maybe your wording isn't perfect, they'll jump on you. We don't assume the best of each other. Where do you think civil discourse has gone? What do you think has caused it? Because here's – and this is my theory. I just want to see what you think because uh, we know like you're a smart guy. You think things through. I feel because of identity politics – which it's a myth that only affects the left. Identity politics has gone from, and it's a pendulum swing. We used to say, don't talk about religion, politics, this and this and this. Now we say, that's all we'll talk about. In fact, that's even who I am. I am my sexuality. I am my politics. And the reason I think this affects civil discourse now is, the reason people get so mad is, you're not just anymore debating my politics, you're attacking me. If you disagree with sexuality... You're disagreeing with all I am. If you disagree with religion, you're disagreeing with me. So we can no longer shake hands, walk away and say, well, that's just your view. It's no, you're attacking me when you disagree with this position. And I feel it's identity politics, although we needed a course correction in America because of our past, has affected discourse. I don't know. That's kind of my theory. Where do you think civil discourse has gone? Well, I think... Part of it, this is going to be kind of Nathan ranting a little bit, so disclaimer. Please. Go on. But I think a large part of it ha has happened because politics is the new American religion. And it's a, happening in a really confusing way where mm. 
conservative Christianity is used to, well, not even conservative Christianity, you could say evangelical theology. Yeah. Uh, you could say a lot of different things that require some qualifiers about what that means and trying to distance from baggage. But the church, the Protestant church, we'll say Protestantism, is used to looking at the enemy of the faith being liberalism. And when I say that, I don't mean political liber- liberalism necessarily. Theologically? But or? theological liberalism. Okay. Prot- um, Protestantism since the 1500s, you mean? Or um, somewhat. Are you American? I would say kind of American. Okay. So uh, the term e- evangelical kind of the comes from, in the, I believe it was like the 1850s, a guy named Babington defined something called a quadrilateral, saying these are the four tenets of evangelical theology. I'll see if I can get them all I thought correct. that was a football term. I, didn't I know. know. I thought it was a muscle in my butt. <laughs> um, so there's biblicism, the authority and the infallibility of Scripture, that Scripture is an authority, uh, the cruciform cruciformism. So the cross and Christology is central to the Christian faith. Um, activism, uh, basically the public expression of Christianity, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God now that that matters, that Christian ethics matter. And I can't remember the fourth thing. There's four of them, but those are three of the four. Hmm. So anyways, the fourth is butts. Let's so my that. rant is now disarmed because I have a bad memory, but I got three hard words, right? Yeah. So anyways, that's classic those evangelicalism. Especially the guy's name name is Babington. Like, yeah. Mm, Babington. Babington. Mm. So, that, that's kind of the marker of classic evangelical theology. Okay. So, attacks from liberal, theolo- liberal theology would be saying scripture isn't inerrant or infallible. Um, scripture is just literature. Scripture doesn't have authority. Um, Christ had some... some Authority, but not all. Uh, the The atonement might have been universal for more than more people, so more Unitarian Universalism stuff like that. Maybe even inclusivism. Does that follow? Yeah, that? yeah, okay. inclusivism, um, things like that. So basically, the tr- Protestantism is used to looking at everybody to the left of me is attacking the church, trying to kick kick Jesus off the throne in a, a metaphorical sense. Things like that. And um, was he a response to something? Was this guy like, cause usually like Luther was a response to something. Was this guy responding to a crisis of the day or? I would say just more defining, okay. defining theology, especially cause in that time frame you're dealing with a lot more, um, even frontierism as missionaries are going West, things like that. Um, so anyways, that's more what the church is used to. But right now we're getting attacked from the left and the right. Secularism isn't just a leftist thing. Yep. Secularism is a, there's a rightist secularism. Both of them defining the good life, both of them defining utopia differently. Mm -hmm. Say the the far rightist would say, um, they would say protecting family, protecting our nation, protecting our borders, having a strong military, Mm -hmm. um, throwing out the gays, whatever, all these mm. things say, this is utopia. We will, um, usually not for things like interracial marriage and you get a lot of the racial politics in there and things like white that. nationalism. Mm-hmm. Does that fall in there? Okay. Um, very well could. Yeah. Because it's defining utopia a certain way versus 
leftist secularism's defining utopia and really kicking God off the off the throne. And both of them, what they're doing is they they have authority issues with Jesus. Uh, Mark Sayers from Melbourne, Australia, says it so much better than I ever could imagine. But he he frames it from a standpoint of as we're looking at post Christianity, it's completely different than what we've seen before, hmm. um, where it's really wanting the kingdom of God without the king. Jeez. So it takes aspects of Christianity and aspects of Christian culture as a foundation. Says, "Oh, we like that. We like justice. Yeah, we like equality, which are Christian ideas." If you're talking to somebody from a pre-Christian culture, so a, a culture that hasn't been penetrated by the gospel yet, yeah, um, you you could think even like Anglo pagan Anglo Saxons, like yep, pre-Christian tribal tribalism in Africa. Uh, very spiritual, superstitious, um, multiple gods, multiple ways to appeal them, gods that are um, fickle, gods that are greedy, gods that you can't trust. So it's pre-Christian culture, Christian culture. Um, and now post-Christian culture says, oh, we like ideas like justice and equality but that are offensive to pre-Christian culture. So they're Christian ideas. So like, oh, we like that but we don't want to bow our knee to an authority. Huh. So then what happens is I become the authority. My ideas become the authority. My experience becomes the authority and nobody can challenge me because then they're challenging my authority. So that's playing into a civil discourse. Exactly. Oh wow. So in that sense, when somebody challenges your ideas about politics, your ideas about gender, your ideas about, immigration, your ideas about race, it becomes they are challenging your authority because it's very, oh, very, wow. very hedonistic where you are like pleasure, your pleasure, your experience and what you want. That's the ultimate. That is utopia. So if somebody creates discomfort for, for you by disagreeing with you, especially if it's somebody that is a loved one, if they disagree with you and they create discomfort, Oh well, you should just burn them at the stake and write them off because they can. They committed the cardinal sin. If, if question, because so because sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater, but don't really look at why are people pursuing you know this or doing that? Because often there's a sliver of truth, but they're just looking for something wrongly or it's going sideways or like you know, like perfect example when someone says, you know. I, I, I have sex, you know, with women or sleep around. Yes, I look at them as a Christian and go, what are you doing? But they're looking for something. And there's some desire in there that may even be like linked to like, all right, it, it's not wrong to desire sex. It's not wrong to desire, you know, closeness, connectivity, but you're doing it wrong, you know, and seeing, you know, really asking the question, what are they seeking? What do you think they're seeking in identity politics? Because that's a big thing that's talked about now is identity politics. And I don't think it's just the left because I see the right do it in the sense of I'm a patriot. That's who I am. God and country. That's what I am, what I believe. And the left, it's my sexuality. My What What do you think they're really seeking for in identity politics? What are they looking for from a biblical, like if you had to lay it out in a Christian context, what is the soul seeking? Because when I, I remember me when I was in drugs, 
It was, I want euphoria, I want peace, I want, I want to go to a higher plane. Why are they seeking an identity politics? I want to hear Sean's view on this too, because he hates people. <laughs> I just, that really hurts my throat. Uh, what do you think, Nathan? And then Sean. And then Nathan. And then Seth. I think it's kind of the... I would say it's not a new struggle by any means. It's just looking a little bit different than we're used to. But it's the struggle of whether we're craving... We're craving the aspects of the Imago Day that were damaged by the fall. Okay. And what happens then is we settle for a counterfeit. Huh. I would say that that is the core... The crux of discipleship, the crux, the crux of the human experience, the crux of the human relationship with God is craving the genuine, genuine articles and settling for a counterfeit. So we, we crave an aspect of our identity where we realize that we are not whole. We're trying to become something that we know we can't be. So we reach for things, but we can't reach far enough without Christ. So we settle for a counterfeit identity. So we say, I'm not, my own insecurities or my own, um, damaged human, my own damaged experience, my own personal baggage. I can't do away with it. Where you look at creation without the lens of the fall, things shouldn't happen. There should not be something like racism. Racism is violence to God's created design. I agree. It is completely disharmonious with God's creation. Dehumanizing goes, yeah. Exactly. It's, it is chaos in God's created order. Okay. So we look at something, we say, this shouldn't be this way. Mm-hmm. And so people fill in the gaps. So that can look like a lot of different things. And how we're seeing it look like something that's catching us off guard is that looks like average Joe blue collar construction worker who can't find a job. and is struggling to provide for his family. It is insecure because he can't provide for his family. So who does he blame? Got to blame somebody. Yeah. Because rather than say, this is not as it should be, they say, well, somebody's to blame. And it's an age old story of blaming a group of people. And othering them. And othering them. them, Exactly. To say they are the cause of my discomfort. Because Vietnam, we didn't say, all right, and we do this in war because it's, it's easier to hate someone when you dehumanize them. We didn't say, you're going over there to kill beautiful human beings who are hard workers. You said, you're killing communists. You're killing monsters. Like uh, Germans in World War II, we'd have posters of them as like demons and monsters. Because you don't want to say, you're going to kill people who are beautiful made in the image of God. You have to say, they're less. They're not. They're humans. They're, they're inhuman. They're the enemy. Because if uh, not... You look at the theological gymnastics that people like... That, we, that for the most part, Protestants look at with respect, like the Puritans, and say, oh yeah, they're great guys. Yeah, they're great guys. And you look at the theological gymnastics they had to do with the, Im- the image of God to justify their views on race. Dude. To say, oh, well, there's actually a couple images of God, You're and a one lesser of them is more image. jacked up than yeah. ours, so because theirs is more marred than us, that justifies our, my treatment of them. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's I, like, actually, uh, nope, can't, can't make that leap there. Sean, I yes. agree so much with what you've just said think people are looking for those God-given pre-fall attributes of their life, of the world, of their relationship with God. But they stop short and for some reason assume that, you know, what their dad taught them is, is true. 
or it's maybe, fact, yeah. or maybe even whatever their political bent is or their lean is, that's probably, you know, something that happens through their nurturing, you know, and, and, and raising, but it's, it's like weird. So for example, we, we would say an average American would say, Oh, we need to close down our borders because that's going to improve the state of, I don't know, jobs and, and law and order or something like that. But is that true? And like you're saying, Seth, like at what point can we not have civil discourse to, to actually discuss this and, and think about the merits of open borders versus closed borders? I think it's when somebody assumes that there is nothing else uh, to be discovered out there. Like they assume that this has already been um, established as fact and there's no it's reason to continue out, discovering. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's like, I tried it all. And all of it came up kind of short, except working hard or something. But um, Solomon didn't thing, do heroin, by the way. Come on. <laughs> I think he probably did some type of opiate. They probably had and a drug back then. I huh? think it gets complicated in that I, I'm grateful that I feel no calling whatsoever to be a politician because I I don't know how I could walk there as a Christian yeah, you and have not a soul. get lost. Like, I think you would get fired quickly because you'd say the <sighs> truth. I, I would say so many things that wouldn't make me popular for for all the reasons that everybody gets popular. All like, the reasons. All of them. Um, but you look at something like protecting our borders. From a political standpoint, you could you can tackle it from a political standpoint. As a Christian, I think where we get stuck is we stop thinking about something in the terms of a Christian and start thinking of the terms of an American. Yes. Yep. And those two aren't the same. Not only that. And I if mean, we're offended by that, like if we're offended by that statement to say that Americanism and being an American and being a Christian, a Christian are not the same thing. Well, that should be telling because there's a lot of church history that says, Hey, what if it's true? <laughs> Empires rise and fall. To it, yeah. yeah, and the early Christians pissed off the Romans because they looked at Christians as atheists because they wouldn't adopt the other crazy? gods that yeah. the Romans did, and that's how the Romans are so powerful. They say, oh, we'll just incorporate these, but we'll also incorporate the, the Greek gods. We'll also incorporate Caesar. So to defy them, you are either polytheistic or you're an atheist. Right. And so Christians look, were looked at as atheists, and that's what justified a lot of the, the, the suffering and the persecution of early Christians. So they othered them. Yeah, so they exactly. didn't say, oh, I, exactly. they didn't say, oh, I'm a Roman Christian. They said, no, I'm a Christian. Yeah. A third that's, way. That's I, think, that's, I think, the big thing and what's really prevalent here, and this is going to sound so punk rock, but there's... <sighs> Go on. There's social classes that the American church has almost reinforce the definition between social, these social classes when the church's responsibility is to break down barriers between social classes. But I think it's failed in America to a large part, but when there is this distinction um, and some will call it tribalism, but I think it's, it's a little different than that. I think it's literally like there's a social hierarchy and there's, you know, at the top there's this aristocracy and at the bottom there's this, you know, um, I don't know what you call it, the Florida man or something like that. And at some point, p- 
people get stuck in their ways and they refuse to acknowledge other people's opinions because they are in that class and they know they're in that class. Mm -hmm. And the only provable method for living inside of that class is within these social and political norms. And I think that's a major, major problem. And that goes all the way back. I mean, that goes way back before, you know, America was founded. But, um, what? I, I thought really we were 5,000 years old. <laughs> I really we do. We invent think, the Bible. I really do think that's a major problem. And you see, um, you see that starting early, early on in the history in the Bible. You see, um, God separates the Jews, but God separates the Jews not in a way that says, um, I have selected these people to be more valuable or more precious. He selected them to be holy, but the Jew. Well, I, I won't speak for the Jews. And to ultimately bless all nations and to, to the entire world. To ultimately bless the entire world, and I think the the big don't pee in the fridge, Nate. <laughs> all right, continue, Sean. I think that the big holdup is when they did start um, considering themselves to be more important or more valuable for some reason than these other people. And you can see blatant racism happening way back in the Old Testament that a lot of people would say, well, God told them to do that. God told them to go and uh, make distinction between them and these other people, but not in an, in an effort to devalue them, in an effort to bring holiness to them. And I'm not saying that God's plan failed and the Jews ruined it because of that. You know, I was talking to Mel Gibson earlier and he... Uh, has repented of of that, but I do think like that's what breeds anti-Semitism to some degree. But what I am saying is that it's a it's a fallen human nature that happens all the way back to the very beginning of of time, even biblical time. I'm not saying anything's the Jews' fault. I just want to be clear. I'm saying that the Jews were humans, and they and even the non-Jews probably did the exact same thing to other people because it's an issue of your fallen nature as a human. I think a good test for American Christianity is this: like when I hear, all right, and this isn't the topic, but it's just I, I think it's a good test anytime you say because we've talked about this. It's the passive-aggressive way you go. Well, I hold the biblical view. Um, when you say. A Christian has to do this. All right. If you're saying he has to do it, you're saying it's a command. If it's a command, then if you don't do it, disobedience is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. So you have to make the case that if they do not do this, it's sin. And for it to be biblical truth, biblical truth has to be absolute, universal, universal, and always true. Not true for some people. So if you say you always have to do a loyalty oath to your country, which is what the Pledge of Allegiance is. Was it a spider? Yeah. Again? I gotta, I gotta bomb this place. Hey, can I ask you guys something? I'm sorry. Oh, you're I'm gonna let you finish. Me. I, I want to talk about. Well, you are Kanye. Go ahead. You just Kanye me. I'll let you finish, but. <laughs> but Beyonce. But Russell Moore had a better <laughs> dissertation. Sorry. Go ahead. If you say you have to do an oath of allegiance. And that's the Christian thing to do. Okay, then that has to be true for every Christian of all time, every country. So, Christians in Iran have to do a loyalty oath. Christians in Russia, uh, China under Mao, they had to do a loyalty oath. If you say, you always have to bow to this, or serve this, or just worship. I, Dude, I have tons of friends are, who are police. 
and they're noble, just men and women. But I don't worship them. You have to tell them to worship the secret police then in Russia who are beating and murdering. Like, we say these things, but if I bring up Russia or someone else and say, well, if you saw a video during Stalin of their hand on their heart, them singing the chime, you go, whoa, what brainwashed communists. Yeah. Yeah, that's we go, well, that's the biblical way. I go, no, it's fine to say something's your preference. It's fine to say something's your opinion. But when we say, well, a real Christian, I saw this once. It was, it was on Facebook. It was, in my experience, those who bow, you know, during the national anthem aren't the type to bow to Jesus. Ugh. So what's the implication? If you're the type who doesn't stand up for a pledge of allegiance, you're probably not saved. Okay, then you have to, since you made that statement, I didn't, you have to prove it across the board. Because when I say the Bible says there is no other way, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, that is universal across the board true. Jesus is all the way, universal. When it says do not rape, when it says do not commit adultery, that is true. But if you went, thou shall not vote Democrat, you have a long way to prove because you're staying it as a truth. Fine. You have to biblically across all borders, across all ethnicities. I mean, it just, I almost said genres, but across, <laughs> it's just nuts. Now, what'd you interrupt me for, Kanye? Oh, I hear this. Uh, it's, <laughs> I am swift and you have Kanye. <laughs> it's not quite to the level of importance of what you were just talking about, but I just am curious if you guys have also noticed this and we've seen, even our peers say things like uh, the immigration problem in the United States is is too much. Um, a, a working man just can't get a job anymore or whatever like that. But how has everybody somehow been able to ignore a true threat, which is spiders? Have you guys <laughs> noticed more spiders in the last 10 years than the <laughs> previous 10 years? And they're getting that. bigger. They're bigger? And they look way they're, more evil. They're meaner? Yeah. They have, they're, they're in more places that they shouldn't be. I mean, one of them tried to take my wallet last week. <laughs> they have suicide bomber vests. A long time ago, <laughs> I believe there was, I, I, what? People will say, Hey, we're encroaching on the spiders natural territory. That's not true. There is so much. There's plenty of outside for them to stay in. We didn't Why land did on spiders. They landed and, on us. Especially like, <laughs> two years ago, I walked outside my apartment door at night to take the trash out, and there was one of those big nasty ones yeah. where all the like the hundreds of offspring cling. Oh yeah, to, yeah. yeah, soulless and killing machines. I smashed it with an axe because I figured yes. it was a weapon worthy so of the uh, the foe. So yes. I smashed it with an axe. You smote down your and enemy. hundreds of little uh, baby spiders no, no, scattered no. everywhere and it looked like the no. floor was crawling. It was the most terrifying thing See, I've ever seen. I, I, that's what freaks me out. I'm not freaked out, honestly, about a spider bite. You know, in arachnophobia, they have like the giant spider and it's yeah. like fighting Jeff Daniels. That didn't really scare me that much because you can just shoot it with a nail gun. It's the tiny spiders that are on you. The shower scene. She's in the shower taking yeah. a shower and her eyes are closed because she's in the shower. Spiders are crawling all over her and they never bite her. One of the creepiest they never things do anything I bad. ever saw was when we used to go to a summer camp up at Shasta. Mm -hmm. And Shasta has nothing but poison oak and like snakes and spiders. Yeah. And glorious. And before we'd get up there the day before everyone else would show up. And one of the things that we had to do after we set everything up was like clear out all the black widow webs out of all the picnic uh, tables. Because they were all held together with this rectangle steel stock pipe. 
uh-huh. and you could look through the the pipe and see, see Black Widows hanging off the nails. And so, and they let all the Black Widow webs would be outside the ends of it. So we would take bug spray and fill them full, fill the pipes full of bug spray and light them on fire and just yes. burn them all. Yes. And it, we were sitting like, for, it was church camps. It was like the first opening session. And a friend of mine was sitting on on the table in front of me. And I looked at the, down where he was sitting. I was like, I don't remember cleaning out that bench. And Rise, he, I thought that he put his hand down on the bench, leaned back, and I watched a black widow crawl out of the pipe and up his hand. Oh gosh! I was, I so I like tapped him on the shoulder and I was like, "Move your hand!" And he like freaked out, moved his hand, and it crawled back in. Oh, it was see, one that's of the, the single worst. creepiest things. Thinking that, that, that would have a black widow there bucks? and watch yeah. it just go like crawling. Seth, you we paid caught, me for twenty bucks to hold one. Yeah, remember? we caught a black widow. And uh, tried to feed it like meat and things, and it didn't really work. But uh, uh, we got a pool going for Seth to like hold the Black Widow for five minutes or something like that. It was terrible. No thanks. <laughs> and yeah, Seth just did, and he did, and the Black Widow didn't bite him. And that's the worst. Like actually, that's not the worst. The worst is when there's a, when there's a spider and you don't know it, and it's been there for a long time. That's what freaks me out. So my question is, who is upholding? The law, when it comes to a long time ago, there was a there was a truce. The spiders stay outside; people live inside. <laughs> a pox arachno or something like that, Maver- and nobody's upholding this. Maverick and I. All right, I don't know if they were sleeping, but we came upon a camp of them. So here's what happened. I'm not you caught them on the wares. So we pull up, and he goes, "Daddy, what are all those nets?" And by our bushes, in a row. There's six or seven huge black spires. And I look, they're, they're just lying in wait for you. Now, I don't I know if they're them. asleep or what. Maverick goes, what do we do? I'm like, smash them with giant rocks. So him and I go and we pick up huge rocks and start tossing them. And it's excessive. I mean, like, Were you the rocks to- on fire because <laughs> they should have been. <laughs> yes. I, I bless them first and, and we're hitting them. <laughs> and every time Maverick and I are throwing them, and they're ones you have to throw with two hands. He's going, got you, sucker. And like, you can Good. see them staying Good. on the ground. Yes. We That'll killed, do, son. That'll do. <laughs> we killed six before the seventh one started moving like we're under attack. And I hovered over him. <laughs> and I smote his ruin. You peed on him, didn't and you? And Maverick came to the last one. And he goes, Daddy. This one still doesn't know we're attacking. And I go, what do you do? He goes, no mercy. And he, and he throws the rock, kills it. And he goes, did we do good? I'm like, yeah. He goes, the good guys win sometimes, dad. I was like, that's right. But we caught them unaware and we struck them down. Oh, I also I paid for exterminator and I found dead spires all over. He probably killed like 50. Good. It was good. terrible. I also killed some squirrels. Continue. The, the thing is, we shouldn't have to do that. Like, that's our government's responsibility. Our politicians are We pay taxes us. for that. They should stay outside. Tyler Mack would say you should privatize that. You, he would. Free market. You had to go outside onto their territory and make a line of spider stains on your sidewalk to, to, prove, a to prove a point. But you should never have to have done that. I've always been a fan of killing them and leaving their carcass just to warn the others. Exactly. What will happen if they cross me? You nail them to the wall and put in blood. This is what happens when you invade the heartless. <laughs> Hang house. it from a little like noose. Wakanda. Some of little pikes. Yeah. 
<laughs> I sent a piece of his body to every member of his family. <laughs> and they have a lot of body parts. <laughs> You're like, jeez, yeah. why? I cut them in 12 pieces and <laughs> sent them to each tribe. I think that the spider problem is a much more prevalent problem than anything. We have brown recluses, black widows. Hobo spiders. Tarantulas. Hobo spiders? Taking our jobs. That's a real thing. Hobo spiders. Oh, really? Knocking. Yeah. <laughs> They're actually pretty bad. <laughs> What did they well, do? All right. In all in all truth, they are a real name, but they're on government assistance. They have a tent city. It's ridiculous. No, they are real and apparently they're deadly. I just really? I didn't look There's a lot there's so many deadly spiders. Which is worse, brown recluse or black widow? Brown recluse, I think, is about the worst because it eats your flesh. Ugh. I mean the black Why? widow makes you sick for a while. Why and you would puff God up? even allow this like genocide that's what i'm saying he didn't this is a product of sin and it needs to be stopped we are so busy being focused on things like immigration and tax reform (laughs) and things like that when the true enemy they're breeding they're getting bigger and they're they're violating the truce with absolutely nothing they're coming they're coming for all of us oh gosh you just know I'll get behind one of them in traffic. Ugh, classic. <laughs> All the time. So, you had other questions, though. I've asked my question. Okay, okay. I've gotten well, all SJW. Wait, dog. so you're saying you don't allow me to prepare for what you're going to say, but you prepare? Well, we, we Seth thought about, a we thought about this for two minutes while eating tacos. Yes, yeah, that's not I, exactly preparing. I called you an hour before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the problem. Seth and I were like, we don't have a guest. We should probably think of something to talk about. And we came up with ideas, and then uh, Seth you showed up, in, and now we don't need Seth to. Seth called a quadrilateral. <laughs> he called it in. <laughs> An audible. The reinforcement. All right, Sean, get down to the brass taxes. Let's The brass right, flaps. I want to talk about angridoxy. <laughs> That's our new term. So we angridoxy. came up with this angridoxy thing. And, and I was a little misrepresented by my own self. By your words. <laughs> <laughs> because I often misrepresent myself because I sometimes <laughs> I no, think I have the right me. word in my head and I end up uttering the wrong potato. Syllable? <laughs> yeah. The wrong, <laughs> you put the so, wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable? Exactly. That's um, the epitome of hyperbole. <laughs> epitome. Oh, hyperbole. Remember the hypersphere ball? Or it was just called Sphere Ball. What? Sphere Ball. Sphere Ball? Ball? In Final Fantasy X, where you're in a sphere of water and you can swim. Oh, I don't like that Final Fantasy. That was a bad Final Fantasy, but Sphere Ball looked awesome. Anyways, I also didn't like Bosch Lives. That was a different Final Fantasy. That was stupid, too, yeah. Bosch Lives! All right, continue. So, um, Sphere of Water. Sphere of Water. I actually don't. Oh, yeah. Anchor Doxy. So. Thanks to you, I now keep feeling like I have spider. <laughs> I know. It's, see what I. We're living in a state of fear. Why isn't anybody doing anything about this? And you know, the Democrats have enabled this. <laughs> Burn them with fire. <laughs> Anchor the spiders, not the Democrats. I'll tell you this. On December, we'll still be saying Merry Christmas to, despite the spiders. I'll, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> That's right. Okay. We'll say Merry Christmas in Starbucks my Starbucks Cubs better have spiders on hikes this year. <laughs> I asked, actually, Luke Holland, who's going to be your future podcast partner, Nathan, and also we've had on also the show as a guest. Also big efficient, yes. I had him draw up a tattoo for me to put on my chest that was like a spider in one of those circles with it crossed out. 
so that I could pull my shirt down and say, not welcome to spiders. Oh, <laughs> like one of the creepiest things ever is like the whole account in the Silmarillion about the spider. Dude. Oh, God. Even yeah. Tolkien. The tree, sucking the life out of the tree. Oh. Notice cats and spiders are often evil. I'm just saying, I know some friends have cats. I get that. But you shouldn't. It's still not good enough excuse. <laughs> it just, Ugh, Tolkien was like spiders. riding it and he's smoking. His wife's all what? He goes, the spiders and just writes yeah. a chapter he goes they're these gonna suck the life out of a killer. tree they are gonna suck all the light from the world uh, what okay oh, angry so doxy many- so okay, continue um i attempted to pause it and i did so poorly that i don't believe that orthodoxy or church history specifically should have as much authority and certainly not more authority than scripture. And I think this is important to me because I feel like a lot of the ways that the church in general has gone wrong has been um, with church history or orthodoxy as an excuse. So, for example, no drum sets in church. I think is absolutely um, overruled by scripture. There's absolutely no reason that you can have a rule saying there should be no drum sets in church. Scripturally speaking, we worship God with the use of cymbals and claps and all of these percussionary things. But somehow there's still churches out there that say you can't have drum sets in church. Now, whether or not you can have drum sets in church isn't important to me, but I'm just saying the same logic is applied usually when the church is okay with American slavery, when the church is okay with blatant racism, when the church is okay with things like putting people into internment camps, or when the church turns a blind eye on pedophilia, or when the church is uh, making excuses for burning people alive because uh, they have a certain skin, or when the church gets behind stealing the land from a native people. All of those things... They use church history? Well, that was that was or the tradition. excuse where they said, if anything's going to, yeah, tradition or church history, if anything's going to overrule this scripture, they're going to say, yeah, it does say this in these parts, but if you look to tradition, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's stupid and the dumbest thing in the world. And that's why the term orthodoxy frightens me because I think it's just been used for so many awful things. When... Church history and orthodoxy can inform you and give you wisdom and help line up with scripture and uh, make decisions that way. But I don't think it should have as much authority as scripture. I think the door kind of swings both ways in the sense we're hesitant to look at our heroes and Christians are just as susceptible as anybody else to make (laughs) heroes of somebody. So we make our pet theological patristic father our pet reformer and say like they're our hero and we we hesitate to say but they were wrong about blank right and we don't we do that with things with people now well we're we're hesitant to say oh well i like nt Wright his views about the new heaven and the new earth but his views about justification might be a little wrong or so we were hesitant to say ah they got that wrong so Easy example, I think, is like with Luther. People are like, oh, well, he wasn't an anti-Semite. He just had 
health issues and he was getting kind of sickly and cranky. It's like, no, no he <laughs> was an anti-Semite. And it's okay to say that he got the Jew question wrong. Yes. That he was absolutely out of line. like Edwards got it wrong with African Americans. And every one absolutely. of us, we have blind spots and we have them now. I don't know what they are. I think I have some. And I think the hard part is we blame kind of this nebulous, vague thing of like undefined church people and Christians. Now this is our blind spot, but what are my blind spots? Cause right. I have them. I don't, and I need people to point them out to me. Right. And I grew up in a very small bubble, church bubble, that was very one-sided with a lot of conversations. And when I started talking to people from different denominational traditions that lived in different community settings than I did, specifically like more of an urban context, people from different ethnic backgrounds, people from different countries, I started to realize there are blind spots that I have. And unless I'm in conversation with people to expose them, I won't see them. So we, we all have right. those because we isolate ourselves to a tribe of people that looks like us. So it's easy to convince ourselves that Luther wasn't an anti-Semite. Right. When we're talking to other people that idolize Luther and are afraid to say that he might have been an anti-Semite. Karl Barth was uh, faithful to his wife. Tozer was a good husband. Yeah. Seth likes cheese sandwiches. <laughs> and that's my point, though. You have the individual who has those blind spots, and that's what community, especially like Christian fellowship, is good for, is calling out those blind spots and preventing some terrible thing from happening in the future. Once something becomes adopted by a whole local church or even denomination, like, how is that possible? The only way that I can see that as possible is with using orthodoxy as some kind of uh, reason or scapegoat for can, that. Can I? All right. I want to ask this because I don't think, and I totally get your view. One, I think we need to always put our biases on the table. I think you would agree you have a nat natural anti-establishment lean. It'd be same if we had yes. someone who's a far right wing and yes. they say something that's a right wing position. I'd go, okay, I think you need to put that on the table. The second thing is this. What I'm aware of is, although it's true in some cases, I don't know if all the cases that you brought up were 100% based on that. Because with the Native Americans, the way they justified it in the beginning, at least, I thought was not with necessarily pointing to history or tradition. They created a whole new doctrine altogether called the Doctrine of Discovery. Yes. Which they didn't base on anything. They had no grounding. They had no history because they even admitted, they said, we've never dealt with this before, where they said, hey, Doctrine of Discovery dictates if they're not white European Christians, it's not a real civilization. So if you come in and do stuff, they're not real humans. It, it, you actually discovered it because it didn't count as a real civilization. Are you, count, are you talking about Manifest Destiny? Um, no, there's... Uh, before that, Manifest Destiny is usually along that concept and the, the idea... They, they based it off that okay. the Catholic Church did the Doctrine of Discovery, which if you look it up, Mark Charles, Native American theologian, has been bringing it up, and Protestants even adopted it. And Jonathan Edwards, to my knowledge, there was history. He did use some tradition. Yes. But I also saw him taking an existing doctrine, not necessarily even tradition, and said... Well, and just totally corrupt it, twist it, 
because I've always liked the idea of it says, you know, don't ever judge philosophy by its abuse or ethic. <laughs> Absolutely. I felt like there's many of these situations you bring up, which may be true in some cases, where it wasn't necessarily tradition. They either created a brand new doctrine and pulled it out of their butt, or corrupt and twisted an existing one. And if that's the case, I mean, well, we've done that with doctrine. And I feel like you have... I don't feel like you've ever had the same animosity towards doctrine as you do uh, tradition. See, and I would say, like with the doctrine of discovery specifically, I would say that they, I'm sure that they came up with that in a new land, having new, a whole new landscapes and everything. But I would say they, they must have justified that saying, this is how we treated the uh, Gothic culture in Europe. Did they? History is written not by the people who are going to say they were wrong. It's by the victors. Yeah, but uh, what I'm saying is how could you ever come to a crazy conclusion like... Depravity and sin. I I understand, but that depravity and sin had existed before. Like, how does the church body allow that to get to the point? Because they didn't need tradition to be depraved in that. It's... No. Well, no. All right. You're making a good point. I think they easily could have said, well, this is how churches always looked... But they had nothing in tradition that said since Jesus in the New Covenant. Well, I think a big how we part of it natives. is oh, yeah, here, when we come into when a group of Christians go into a people group that has not yet responded to the gospel. So a, a situation like um, Native Americans, a situation like missionaries going overseas, taking the gospel into a culture. The danger is to colonize them with more than the gospel. Yep. Yes. Rather absolutely. than let the gospel saturate that culture. Do they and need bring tradition to do that, or just aspects. depravity and pride? I would say that what it's really hard to do on on our end to not to make the distinction of we are influencing with the gospel, not co- our culture and our preference, because every culture is different preference. So colonization happens when the gospel goes into a culture and we bring other baggage with it that we say is normal. And then we justify it because we say, oh, well, they're savages. We need to bring them to our cultural standards, whether that's ethical. um, It could be something as simple as dress. Like that's why you, you talk to, you know, you go overseas and you go to a small village in Africa or a small urban church in Manila and there's a pastor who's wearing a suit because some Baptist missionary told him that pastors have to wear suits and leave yes. from the King James Version. And yes. you're like, what? How did that happen? So was that tradition or cultural bias? I think it's it's both in the sense we don't distinguish what our preference is. Okay. Versus I like with that. I, before we started, we were as we were eating tacos, we were talking about um, kind of my church context, um, where I'm one of the more reformed thinking people um, at the church that I'm, I work at. It's very, it's a lot more diverse than many churches are, and as far as just the theological perspectives of the pastors on staff. There's guys that are more reformed. There's a couple Wesleyan guys on staff. There's a couple people on staff that pray in tongues. They come from more charismatic backgrounds, and we disagree with each other on things. Not nearly to the extent that people from our camps, when they're isolated, yes. think that we do. Absolutely. That's so true. I, all the time, my friends that are more reformed were like, oh, yeah, 
you know, that, those guys that are Wesleyans preaching you can be perfect. I'm like, no, they don't think that. They don't tell anybody that because they don't think that. Like yeah. you, you argue that they, the stereotypes of that camp. When you're in a, a diverse setting, you start to see more matters of preference versus standard. What is orthodox versus what is preference? We're not very good about distinguishing our own preference for things that could be a theological perspective, could be a political perspective. A large part of our personalities flesh out in our political lives. If we are more conservative by nature or more anti-establishment by nature, it's going to flesh out what we think. Absolutely. And let me actually just cop to that. I am absolutely an anti-establishmentarian. That looks ridiculous. I I will not wear a suit. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) But... And, and, and I lean that way. So my reasons, I'm making a lot of assumptions. I'm making a lot of generalizations, assuming that orthodoxy is misused in these cases. But let's take that out of the whole thing. What I'm asking is this. Are you guys saying, I'm saying that orthodoxy does not have authority equal to or more than scripture. Are you guys saying that it does or it can or there's nuance in it? I would and it never might? say it's with scripture. And here's the thing, though. I feel like you're arguing, to be fair, and this isn't against my friends, but that is much more in my mind. If it was the 1600s, it might be different. But right now, that is much more in my mind a Catholic view of the weight of that. I don't know any friend of mine outside of a few, there's a few, the bulk of them, if I said, dude, does tradition have the same way as scripture? They'd say, absolutely not. That That's why I kind of sometimes get confused with the argument because I go, dude, I completely agree with you. And we had this argument 500 years ago. Yes, I, 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 and I agree with you. I there was some good orthodoxy. But I feel like you're throwing out chunks because you're going, okay, I, I disagree with this. I go, but we all disagree with you. You go, no, this is what I'm saying. I go, but we agree with you. You're all... No. And we've redefined, I feel, in the Reformation orthodoxy of we've had levels of it. You got scripture, you have general revelation, you have this. I feel like if you were in the Roman Catholic Church, I'd I'd call you a pioneer. Now I just go, Well, yeah, we all mainly agree with you. I, I just think there's that lean com- alright, it's like this. You know that I have issues with authority. But I'll still participate. I have this kind of cynicism, uh-huh. but I'll still vote. But it's more out of this, my righteous, oh, I'm protesting. You know, that's why I march. I'm more activist. I admit that. I'll put that all on the table. I feel this is less about our camp does this a lot and more about personal experiences you've had of people doing this to you. Who Those same people, many of my friends, me and others would say, yeah, we disagree with them too, Sean. But don't throw out orthodoxy because orthodoxy is also the ones who, you know, slaps heretics in the face. The one that says, no, you don't do this. Like with slavery, when people pushed back, those same people were using orthodoxy saying, no, the church has always said image of God applies to everyone. So the same thing that was a weapon against some of that stuff, you, I feel like sometimes want to throw out. So when, what What am I throwing out though? Because well, all I'm, I'm appealing for people to... Make a you statement, said you didn't like you the word orthodox said. at all. I don't like the word, but <laughs> what I'm saying is, you. I think you just said this, but you didn't say it clearly. Let me echo that. Go ahead. Does orthodoxy have the level of authority in the Christian life and the and the body of the church as scripture? Orthodox tradition 
See, that's our thing. Orthodox tradition is not the same level as Orthodox scripture. Because there's also people say this is considered Orthodox theology. This is considered Orthodox liturgy. And then you're talking about, because Orthodox isn't just tradition. And I would say, yeah. Orthodox tradition does not have the same level of authority as Orthodox scripture. And I, I would say, that's all I want. I would think of it in terms of historical theology. Um, orthodoxy, I think people throw around a lot because it's a term that makes people feel like they, they're more knowledgeable about theology than their peers. Yeah. So they talk about orthodoxy and it's kind of, it's a, it's a hipster word. People throw it around because it sounds cool. But really what that means is, oh, I'm reading theologians from the 1600s that I agree with and that's orthodoxy. Yeah. And right. I, I think it can be extremely lazy. Yep. When we look at historical theology, if we're not willing to do the hard work to say what theological battles was the church facing, what does this this period of historical theology, how does that inform whatever issues had to be fought? So you look at the Reformation. Those are matters of soteriology, the theology yes. of salvation. What saves? Works or grace? So it's a soteriological conversation that was needed in that period because of the abuses of Catholicism. Yes. Rampant abusism, abuses. Indulgences, you know, all that, yeah. That, we're only talking a few hundred years old there. That's not that old in comparison with the right. world church. Sounds like 800. And I, I enjoy kind of upsetting some of my, my Reformed brothers by talking about, like, eschatology and end times theology because that doesn't upset anyone i'm like oh so you're an all-millennialist so you basically adopted catholic eschatology yeah. they're like no well yeah because the reformers they didn't really talk about eschatology very much because their fight was soteriology wouldn't it yeah. be so hilarious they, pretty, if Kirk they pretty much said film? like hey so this eschatology we're more focused on matters of what is salvation how do you get reconciled Yes. What is justification? That was their fight. They didn't fight every fight. They might have hinted at it, but they didn't fight every fight. Right. So eschatology, that came later. So you see aspects of theology at different points in history, and you understand cultural conversations that were happening, and a lot of the attacks in the church, and, so, and where the conversations that needed to happen, they can inform our perspective, and this is where historical theology or if you want to say orthodoxy i think can inform us to some of our blind spots when we see why they fought the fight the fight that they were fighting when they did and we can see then do we still have to fight that fight right now right or has it changed you look at a lot of eschatology especially in america in the 60s and 70s when you had the jesus movement with a bunch of hippies meeting jesus and they were convinced that Jesus was coming back on Tuesday. Immediately, yeah. And you see a lot of what was happening history-wise at that time, where you see Israel becoming the state. You see these things, and it's like, okay, I can understand why this is happening. But to treat every point in history like it's now the fight that we have to fight, sometimes can be, I think, a defense mechanism from looking at our own indiscrepancies now. Ab- absolutely. And I'm right definitely now, doing that. We have matters that we need to face. And I think a big battle for our generation is holiness because we don't really want to talk that much about our own personal conduct and what is becoming of a Christian and what's not, because that's an uncomfortable conversation. Right. 
And I think a large part of it is kind of the, the aftershocks of, I would say, and this is probably going to piss some people off, but the failures of the missional movement, when we sent people into to, to go do life in the, the, their local pub and they became more like the people in the pub than the people in the pub became like them right. because they weren't formed. So they had, that's, I think that's the struggle that we face is what does holy living look like for a Christian? And that is not, doesn't need to be legalism. And I think that's where the tension point we have to face is right now. How do we call out people's sins that they are adopting a story that is apart from Christ? Is that adopting a racially biased one? Because that's a temptation, depending on who you run with, the circles that you surround yourself in. That might look like being a... A buying the narrative, um, adopting the narrative of rightist secularism, or that might look like leftist secularism and just saying, I'm so fed up with the church. I'm done with this. I don't, I can't stand these people anymore. I give up. Mm. That's a big temptation, depending on which way you lean. If you're a baby, (laughs) I'm not, hey, sorry, I'm not a shout out to to Jesus Ojeda at Reno because he's a fan. I love the guy. I, had to remember that and yeah. I just also don't want to talk to Shaq <laughs> I, I'm not arguing like syntax I am trying to argue the use of the word orthodoxy the lazy use that you're talking about Nathan is uh, in like seven books I've read lately about orthodoxy is always about church history and there's, there's occasionally some orthodox doctrine they'll talk about and maybe even some orthodox translation methods they'll talk about. But essentially when in my American context, somebody says orthodoxy, it seems like they're always talking about historical theology or church history. Is it normative or regulative principle? The regulative principle is Because that's what great I example. feel you have issue is the regulative principle. And I do have an issue. Where, you I think I an aspect an of this that. that contributes to it is I know people in my life who, by personality, being grounded to a point in history in which things were better than they are now is a big deal for them. Traditions right. yeah. that, that, look, that starts to flesh out in like tangible, small things that are easy to overlook, like... Reagan was the best president ever to say family traditions, how I was raised matters. And I will raise my kids the same way with trivial things of the 4th of July. We always did this when I was a kid. So I'm going to do this with my kids on the 4th of July, which aren't bad, but for some people it's just, it provides a sense of anchoring to be anchored to a point in history because there's some safety there and some comfortability there. And I think there's an aspect where I look at a lot of people in my life that are the guys that love talking about the Puritans. For them, they have a personality. (laughs) All of the friends are the Puritans. (laughs) (laughs) But for them, there's a a semblance of comfort. There's a semblance of understanding. There's a semblance of uh, how they stay grounded in their faith has to be anchored on a point in history. I'm not that way. By personality... I'm more saying, okay, what's happening now? What's open for negotiation? What's in flux? What's changing? Right. And because some people have a hard time with change. And we're not talking about change in like this big picture sense. Just little everyday things are scarier. 
and that's that nobody's the standard there and i think that's where we run the danger to slip into a lot of arrogance that r- becomes a wrecking ball in our families and our our communities because we take our personal wiring and say this is the standard somebody that doesn't view things like i do or they obviously are a liberal they obviously are they don't value orthodoxy because they just don't get it. It's like, right. well, maybe that's more of a matter of your preference. That's not the standard. Hmm. And sometimes I think that's just a personality thing. Like I, I look in contrast with one of my siblings in particular, very much the, the, tra- <laughs> the traditions are big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not that way. I was more the trailblazer son that was like, I'm going to do things my own way. Right. And it was a lot, it's been a lot messier. I've, I have made a lot more mistakes than this sibling. I have screwed up. I've had things blow up in my face, but man, I have gotten to meet some amazing people. And a lot of those times where I've gotten in messy ground hasn't, they're not, I'm not talking about matters of sin. I'm not like talking about like I'm stumbling in an orgy den and I'm like, Oh, shouldn't have gotten here. If only I didn't make, no, like simple fundamental things. It's just like, Shooting no. up heroin on a cyborg. Yeah, elephant. simple stuff. Yeah. I call that Tuesday. Yeah. But <laughs> it's just by personality, I'm more saying, what are the conversations my neighbors are having? How does the gospel influence how I interact with them? How, what conversations is the church not having? Where are we losing ground? Because people are saying the conversations you guys have are completely irrelevant to the conversations I, I'm faced with. Right. That's been more my wiring to press into those matters. And the bottom line is the humbling, the humbling dose of reality is we need each other. I need people that are more grounded in history than me because chances are they're going to help me from making a lot of mistakes. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100%. And on an individual level, that's how it's supposed to work. That's why I'm so confused how it ever gets to a state of church sponsorship where this thing that is, is um, not scriptural but somehow exists as tradition becomes something that is church policy or even something that uh, is maybe miscommunicated or purposely communicated from the pulpit as sin or not sin or something like that. I'll take that one. And I have been burnt to answer your question. I've been burnt by the regulative principle and it does piss me off, but that's not, but I think I've felt this since a lot longer than I was introduced to that. If you think of this and this art and I'll admit like I'm part of this is because of how many years I've known you. Cause this is the first thing I ever knew about you. Um, (laughs) Now the thing is this, um, I of course always start with that. The Bible doesn't start with sin. It starts with, you know, God made us, it was good. We're made in his image. We have dignity and worth. John Perkins, I love it. He always says it good. You, you don't give people dignity, you affirm it. Have God's you read his said, new book yet? I haven't. I, I haven't either. No, I mean, no, I No, you have it. I'm halfway through. Oh, nice. That's next, Dude, that's it's next on my so, to-read list. The cover for me, an artistic person, it's dope. Have you read uh, probably one of the single most impactful books I've read in the last five years? Came the Shack? Out. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Uh, came out last spring, I think. It's called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. Who's it by? Perkins? Um, oh. It's written by... Um, I can't remember now. It's something Strobel, not Lee Strobel. Different Strobel. <laughs> Great. Strudel? Strudel. 
Um, it's the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. Um, and it was written by one, both, both or one of the authors came from, uh, Biola. And a lot of it was written kind of in response to Mars Hill implosion and saying, okay, we have a pretty jacked up view of power authority. We need to figure this out because our view is pretty skewed. It's by Kyle Strobel, Kyle the professor, Strobel. and Jamin Goggin, the pastor. Thank you. All right, so Jamin so, Gorgon and Kyle Strudel. What they do is <laughs> they basically started a journey where they went around, literally around the world, and interviewed some ma- amazingly influential thinkers in the faith, um, Perkins being one of them, uh, Marva Don, Perkins, um, Eugene Peterson. That's a big name, everyone, yeah. Uh, Packer. And they got, dude, they got some big Dallas Willard and um, James Houston. Dallas Willard always confused with the guy from City and Color. Yeah. His name's <laughs> nope. <Go ahead. laughs> but so they, they basically sat down with him. Uh, Jean Venier, who started the large communities in France that are what? community uh, homes flutes? for people with intellectual disabilities and not, oh, wow. not like group homes, community homes, living in community with people with severe intellectual disabilities. And there's dude. now like 200 of them around the world. I'd want to play football. And basically sat down with them and said, Hey, teach us what you've learned about power, authority, strength. And it is one of the most humbling reads. Really? And when they talk with Perkins, it's like, I, I don't, from my perspective, I'm like, how have I never in my arrogant white Christian experience have I not been exposed to somebody like Perkins? And his brother got killed. He got tortured by cops. His brother, I think, was a veteran. Well, here's all right. So let me lead that into discredit Sean and attack his character. Um, in the time I've <laughs> known you, I just feel like a lot of our experience has been people who maybe our dicks. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the motives Pretty were much. wrong, or maybe even the education was there, but depravity and corruption, like, here's the thing. I never want to overplay it where I go, that's all humans are. Sin. That's all God sees. There's nothing else to us. I've never agreed with that. But I don't want to downplay it either that a lot of the things you have to admit that, well, you don't have to, that have been, <laughs> that have formed our life, you notice we look back and go, the Bible doesn't even teach that. It was a yes. corruption. It was depravity. Exactly. It was sin. And I'm seeing this man sin before me 25 years later saying, well, I feel this. And I go, I just feel like that has more to do with uh, humans, depravity, and sin. Like when I think of Satan sinning, he didn't need orthodoxy, tradition, anything else. He's in heaven or video games, bad music, violent television. And then he went, I'm going to rebel against God. And some of these people, I mean, didn't even have tradition. And you and I got hurt. We got hurt bad. Yes. Like where you saw us like, I am done with this. I just feel like I wonder how much of that is speaking versus tradition. Because a lot of the arguments you say, I go, I already agree with you. A lot of people would. But I just wonder how much is pain. Because how many podcasts you know are out there where you listen and you go, okay, you're obviously hurt. You're a reaction against right. the fundamentalists. Yeah. And they've gone so far this way of, oh, I'm so mad, so hurt, where now that's their identity. Politics is their hurt. And I just know you as someone who you've been faithful to God from the get-go, but you've been through at least, I would say, five or six scenarios that were abusive or twisting where I go. that That's why for me, I don't know. It, it's different. You know what's weird? I've always had trouble trusting um 
government at a level of like just democracy, all of that. But church government, I've always had easier time trusting. Mm. And maybe it's because like experience, see, mine's experience. When my wife was in the hospital dying, how much they loved me went, okay, I can trust them. But I, I feel like you've had mistrust of both. Like you don't trust government in general, but then also even church government, you've followed and submitted. But I think there's still been that level of mistrust where it's my main mistrust is like just government in general. Or what they would call secular, even though the Bible says God installs them in there and places people in authority. But you know what I mean, secular. I know what you mean. And I have been Nipples. hurt by individuals, but say his name, I've had Kirk an entire, <laughs> like an entire church body in the name of orthodoxy. In, I'm sorry, in the name of, of historical theology coming against me personally. Or coming against my church personally. Or coming against what I think is absolutely clear and exclusive in scripture. Um, and I just, I guess I don't understand. I do understand how that happens on a personal level. Cause like you said, people are dicks and people have hurt me. And I've, I've, I've struggled with that and that, and usually they're people in authority and that gives me this bent towards anti-establishmentarian. But how does an entire organization that's filled with people that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, how does that entire organization come out against that? Corrupt, depraved people gravitate towards other corrupt, depraved people and then they make a corrupt, depraved organization. Because how, how does the police department have, the vast majority of them are awesome. But a bad cop, cop does something, and ninety percent of them are silent. It's it, if you have a leader at the top, and here's the thing: the majority of cops are good. The majority, all right, I'll pick a random one. The majority of Presbyterians are good, but if you have a church and the leaders discipling that, uh, and you have to think of this because Nathan touched on this, personality plays into it. Experience, like, all right, when I was in Assembly of God priestly prayer for pe- prayer uh, full people naturally gravitated towards that movement because the leaders were more priestly and they were prayerful people just mm-hmm. huge just huge focus on prayer meditation they gravitated towards it so think of it the organization naturally has people with that same mindset that leaders affirming it he's leading it it can easily happen just like this if our church goes okay the leaders reformed and has this natural lean People with that natural lean are going to gravitate towards it. So I wonder if before the leader even says anything, the people who have gravitated towards it already have those same leans, that same weakness. Like the guy in Texas who loves Trump. He wants to make out with Trump. He's a pastor. He already had that lean. And I think the people that came there didn't even necessarily have to be discipled in that. They heard about him and gravitate towards it. They already had that view. He has affirmed it and then built it up more. Yeah. So okay, then he yeah. says something and the whole church goes, yay, well, quite often Trump's going to make out with us, blah, blah, we, blah. We rally Ooh. people behind us that agree with us quite yeah. easily. Absolutely. It takes a Is that making sense? No, it makes sense. Joe I think Rogan. You're, I think you're hashtag right. Hashtag nipples. But it takes a lot of uh, personal security and personal like self-awareness I do. as well as courage to stand up and say, I love this leader, but they are wrong about blank. Yes. And what that doesn't allow for is a lazy consumer that just shows up to church to have their experience as they prefer it. Yes. And to, to go, to have an easy church experience where they go consume and leave. 
it takes somebody that actually says, hey, um, I don't agree with this. I think this is a problem. And to approach it in a, a godly, humble, and respectful, but godly. courageous way to yes. say, hey, courageous. Hashtag courageous. the way in which <laughs> you're speaking about these groups of people is wrong. The way that we have treated this individual is ungodly. And we need to, we, we owe it because they are a brother in Christ to actually pursue them and talk with them. Like, yeah, it takes absolutely. work to do that. And it is a cog in the ministry machine that if you're at a church of 100 people or 1,000 people, 10,000 people, churches don't like to be slowed down. Mm. So yeah. if we interrupt people's church experience and say, hey, time out, like we've gone off base here, um, that requires usually the people that are making that call are either people that are p- more prophetic in nature or more gifted as shepherds. And unfortunately, what happens quite often is people that are more oriented to be teachers, have different giftings, want to move so fast they view shepherds as a hurdle. But it takes right. a church yes. with a good amount of shepherds Absolutely. in leadership that people respect to say, hey, there's a problem here. We need to address it. Things can't move on until we, we have righted these wrongs. So, Sean, and that's missing. I think. How are you facing your giants <sighs> in a courageous way? Because God's not dead. I'm going to tell you this. I have you will, shown someone the grace card lately? I will subscribe. Have you done a U-turn? I have texted somebody that God is not dead, and uh, they blocked me. <laughs> so here's the, here's what I'm going to say. I agree with you 100%, Nathan, and Seth. I agree with both of you 100%. Orthodoxy is not to blame for this. But maybe the lack of what I'm going to call angrodoxers is... The people who are willing to stand up to the person that you're talking about or the people who are willing to stand up to a church leader, those are the people who are missing from the situation. And I propose a group, a ministry within the church that goes and dethrones people who are in churches who are disobeying scripture on behalf of, uh, in the name of historical theology or something like that. So can I say an example? I think I can say this since we've already talked about Mars Hill in Seattle. Where was the guy? I mean, Mark Driscoll is to blame for being a total jerk and a liar and a fraud. But where was the guy who was brave enough to call him out and not run away? He fired him at the point. Yeah, but what? <laughs> why did that guy leave after because getting they fired? fired him. At what point? What I'm saying is this. Say 86 there needs said, to we'll be, call police. There needs, exactly. There needs to be a ministry created for people who are going to violate a trespass and maybe even physically assault somebody to dethrone them from I their position of authority. For this. And I, I, I want to go more. The people who sit, who are the guy who has the private plane, not Creflo Dollar, but the other guy, I can't think of his name. Chuck Norris? <laughs> who has a private plane because, um, like the church just bought him this private plane. And you know what? That's, I'm not, I'm not that upset about that. But he states that if you didn't, uh, support him by doing that, uh, drive to get his private plane, that you are, <laughs> are actively seeking to blaspheme the name of God. That guy needs to be beaten up. Like, and I think it's, yeah. 
I agree. So let's, That's all I'm going to say. Let's start this. It's called the Angry Doxers. The Angry Doxers. And our job is to go around undercover, leather jackets that says Angry Doxers on the back. And we wear a lot of Adidas. And we just walk around and, uh, and we take people out of position of, of ministry that with, with scripture only as the, as the authority. Uh, what do think, you think about that? I think we have to hold, we have to be honest and tell people this and how it was handled or what was said is evil and to not sugarcoat it. Um, to look at somebody like, like a Driscoll and to say, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is sinful. What you're doing is evil. You are wrong. And to be able to be okay with that. And I remember having a conversation with somebody. This was probably two years before Mars Hill imploded. And they they were like, oh, you don't like Driscoll? Like, no, not particularly. Like, well, is that because, like, the egalitarian, like, are you more of an egalitarian? Do you not like cu- the complementarian thing? I was like, no, no, I'm fine with that. that. Like, that's like, well, is it because he's, uh, you know, a Calvinist? And I'm like, no, I'm fine with that too. He's a butt. And they just looked at me, but they're like, but you're kind of reformed kind of, and you're in your twenties and you're a guy. <laughs> you Why don't you him. like him? And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm not a Driscopalian. Like, <laughs> I think the guy's that kind of an asshole. Like at the end of the day, I don't, I think he's arrogant. Yeah. And I think he tr- he talks to people in a way that's disrespectful. And I think he's kind of a bully. At the end of the day, like I think people idolize him because of the novelty. And they're like, oh, he's just saying it like it is. Okay, Same. that that really was goes well. Was he the well. Trump of He theology? really was. And, and oh, I fell for it. And Dang it. <laughs> this is where... <laughs> and I'm definitely going to make people mad with this, but... You already have. Say right. schnitzel fritz. Go I ahead. think a large part of people gravitated towards Trump. Towards Trump. That could also work. <laughs> that could also work. You, you ruined me, Seth. That was people a gravitated This is gonna be the slip. best Driscoll sermon ever. It's people. the best. It's the greatest. Greatest oh. Mars Hill podcast ever. It's Look, huge. People gravitated to somebody like Church Driscoll land. because he was at the, the other end of the spectrum from what their experience was. The man had experienced a very feminized church. Passive. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Was very... There was that was not relatable to them, and in a large part, generationally, a generation that grew up with absent fathers, mm-hmm. either physically or relationally absent, and overbearing moms, mom issues. This guy comes on the scene who is the arrogant jerk. That like, oh yeah, yeah, I like this guy. He yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, and it, like, no, he's a misogynist. Like. He was the Tim Allen, and I don't mean Tim Allen who teaches the Multnomah, you're awesome, we love you. The Tim Allen of home improvement of theology. He was like, ugh, guns, tools, ugh. Who was Al? Who would be Al? And the the, the hard part is it's like his his (laughs) shtick was just yell at anybody and and make a character of anybody that disagrees with me so they're easy to paint them to be the idiot. And I'm like... No, no, you're just a misogynist. <laughs> like, I, would, I would even say, as somebody who was a fan of Driscoll, I was a big fan. I thought he was a great orator. Is Scott McKnight the Bernie Sanders and- then? Or is that Shane Claiborne? <laughs> Shane Claiborne. Rachel Held Evans is Hillary Clinton. Oh, is, a- <laughs> is Russell, who would Russell Moore be? Does Rand that guy Paul. exist? Because he's actually nice. He'd be I'd say he'd be, yeah, Rand Paul. <laughs> 
Huckabee. Uh, Huckabee. Okay, we have to wrap this up, so I just want to say this. If you want to donate to the Angra Doxer ministry, feel free to. You'll never hear from us again. You'll just notice arrogant, private plane having pastors being removed from authority, and that is all. Jerry, oh, uh, just so you know, we will be selling tickets uh, to the Shane Claiborne, Jerry Falwell diversity event where um, Jerry Falwell will be inviting Shea Claiborne to Liberty University to discuss theological issues because you certainly wouldn't, as a brother, ban him from the campus and or it, uh, legally say Especially, save a gun. have you ever seen Shea Claiborne's pants? He could hide a lot of guns in those pants. He could hide a lot. And His they'll discuss hippie it. pants. Because if it's one thing. <laughs> I mean, it's packing heat. Falwell um, wants to discuss its, you know, charitable debate with brothers about guns. He he wouldn't send. I mean, he clearly. <laughs> I mean, seriously, he's not gonna send like a. I don't know. This is crazy. I was straining or saying if you come, we'll arrest you or remove you because no. it's Shane Claiborne. Who, he's not that petty. Shane Claiborne. I'm pretty sure the wind could knock over it. So we'll be selling tickets at an event, which will never happen because all I just said was a lie, and Jerry Falwell does not want to discuss with anyone. Um. Sean. Also, I have five Sponsors? more. Brian Baltimore CDs to give out. Yeah, yeah. Email us with Mortalberry or Thromborton, and uh, we will ship you Torkelton. a CD. Torkelton as well. Torkelton um, and Angridoxy. Email us with any of those words in the subject, and we will give you a free CD. This is not a joke. To quote a great philosopher, shout out to Sidewalks for keeping me off the streets. Um, Nathan, Nathan, do you you have have anything? anything? You're actually educated. I just know welding. I'm graduated. I'm done thinking for at least two weeks. Dude, that's so dope. That's so dope. So I'm just going to sit and read comic books, make inappropriate jokes. Probably not wear pants, especially on Fridays. Mm. No pants Fridays. Why, why specifically Fridays? Because I'm off on Fridays, and I'm used to going to class on Fridays. And mm. for eight years, I've sat in class on Fridays going, why am I wearing pants? Do you have to wear pants? When you go, <laughs> when you go out in public, generally. Oh, terrible. What kind of... See, that's the orthodoxy I can't get behind. <laughs> All right. So yeah, what's the well, worst, we're what's the worst product of sin in the fall? <laughs> Pants. Pants. I agree. <laughs> I hate them. To They're quote the Dave Chappelle and Augustine, zip it up! Zip it out. Zip it <laughs> Oh, yeah. Send an email to Tales from the Ditch. Oh, Tales from the Ditch at gmail.com. Sean will answer because I have a second job. You guys don't pay me. Bye. Bye. Bye.